Thank you, thank you. I am so excited to be with you all again. Last time I was here, it was Palm Sunday. I don't know if you, any of you remember because um, it was like me and like 14 of the most faithful villagers. Is that what you guys call yourself, villagers, or is that weird? All right, the village people, that's good. Now, that's weirder. Um, it, was like, it was like us 15 people while a freak snowstorm hit and it like snowed three, four, five inches or six feet, who knows. We, uh, all thing we knew is that Elgin and Bartlett had put away their plows so everyone was just slipping and sliding everywhere. So I'm excited to be here in summer. It's a privilege and an honor to be here. And since the last time I was here, um, I have gone through a pretty significant life change. Uh, I got married at the end of May and uh, I brought along some photos. So that is my bride and me, and I'm holding the bouquet. That's like one of my favorite photos. I don't know why. I think it's fun and silly and... uh Yeah, I like that one. I brought a couple others. Um, I noticed something while I looked through the photos, even yesterday as I was looking through things. Um, I have, uh, I don't know what the proper term for it is, but I have one of those resting angry faces. I don't quite know why, but you'll see in this next photo. That is um, my wife, Sari, uh, pronounced like Mary, but with an S. That is my wife, Sari, reading her vows to me, but for some reason, I am so... Stoic. The truth is, uh, I was weeping the entire service. I like from the point when it started all the way to the end. I'm not even a crier, and I just like wept bitterly, like I lost someone. Though I was like, you know, getting married. The next photo. Um, this is me. Uh, when she was walking down the aisle, and if you zoom in on the next photo. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know, like genuinely, I don't know why I'm making that face. I was crying in that photo. So you can see what it would be like for my wife when I watch sad movies. She just thinks I'm perpetually angry. And when I'm angry, maybe I look like I'm crying. Who knows? But that is, uh, I got married and that was a lot of fun. And the other thing that August has for us outside of just coming here and teaching, getting to spend some time with you all is all of my students are coming back for the school year, which is absolutely fantastic. We are starting student leader training, which means I have between 15 and 20, I should probably count them, um, uh, students coming back for student leader training. And and that is a blast uh, because then a week after that, the rest of the student body returns and I get to do some of what I love doing the most. I get to start having one-on-ones again with students as they are asking key questions from their life. I get to field disagreements. I get to pray for them. I get to talk to perhaps some of my favorite group of students, my skeptics. I love my skeptics. They are not a nuisance to me. I find them invigorating. They are so much fun to be around. They're some of the most honest people. Like I will get done teaching a message and one of my skeptical students will come up and go, no. No, I don't think so. And I'm like, what does that even mean? No to everything I've just said. I told a couple jokes. You might've liked those. No? Okay, that's fine. But I I enjoy my skeptics. I, I enjoy when they sit down with me and they begin to ask and poke and prod at some of the deepest questions of the faith. 
Most of the time, my students lead out with like skepticism of the mind. Most of the time, the students come with doubts and they lead off with questions about if Jesus is who he says he is or if the Bible really is the word of God or if the God of the Old Testament should be trusted or if we can do away with that God or if we can put off some of the commands or what about some of the sexual ethics and and skepticism of an intellectual nature. They start quizzing me. They, They come with books written by atheistic or authors from other faiths and they want to challenge my points and um, I think that is so much fun. Why? As a side note, because the word of God, the truth of God should be able to stand up against the hardest questions of the day. We don't need softball pitches. We can actually give a defense for the faith in a meaningful, loving, and grace-filled way. So I I love their honest questions, and it's an absolute riot for me. And over the years, I've noticed a couple things about skepticism. The first thing I've noticed about skepticism is that uh, uh, skepticism is a specific disposition towards the faith. Um, Skepticism is often connected with doubt, but what is it? So, So when I have my students, when my students connect with me over lunch or breakfast or something like that, what is it? Oftentimes it's doubt. It's not apathy. It's doubt. It's a faith disposition. So I'm suspicious of God, but I care enough to ask about it. I'm suspicious of this guy, but I don't actually know what to do with it. Further, it's a, it's a stage of faith that most of us go through, and it's not really connected to age or, or level of knowledge or anything like that, but it's a stage of faith where we are, at our core, trying to figure out certain questions, which brings me to my second point. The second thing I've noticed is that intellectual skepticism. When we ask intellectual questions, skepticism It demands intellectual answers, but listen, rarely does it have an intellectual conclusion. It demands intellectual answers, but rarely does it have an intellectual conclusion. Here's what I mean by this. When students ask, there's often a question behind the question. So if they ask questions about how a loving God can permit evil, we can talk intellectually for a while and that is right and good and I should be read up and we should have that kind of a discussion. But more often than not, the question does not sit in philosophical or theological paradigms where we talk about arguments and rebuttals. More often than not, we get to the question of the heart pretty quickly. And the question of the heart is not, why are you skeptical? Stop being skeptical. The question is more often, do you believe that God is good? So intellectual questions demand intellectual answers, but they rarely sit in intellectual conclusions. For every intellectually oriented skeptical question, there's actually a heart trying to figure out if God is good, if he is trustworthy, and if he is gracious. For every skeptical question, there's a heart trying to figure out if God is good, if he is trustworthy, and if he is gracious. That's why I am never fearful when someone goes through a season of skepticism. 
I, I know that the Spirit draws and reveals. I know that Christ arrests a heart and makes himself known. I know that this person at their core is just trying to reaffirm whether God is good. The other thing I've learned about skepticism is that it's most often triggered by hurt or fear. Hurt or fear. In the last several years, I don't know if you've been following in some of the religious news circles, um, there are numerous public Christians, and this is true for my generation and above and down. So like Gen X, millennials, and then Gen Z on down, right? Um, There are numerous public and private Christians who have gone through seasons of deconstructing their faith only to have later fallen away because they didn't find the answers they were looking for or what have you. And I've noticed that there's often a pattern. If you read the interviews, if you listen to the podcast, there's a pattern between what you see as their, like, their journey in this season of deconstruction. The pattern goes like this. It's often someone who grew up in a fundamentalist or hyper-conservative Christian church or household. The church community they were at was legalistic and prioritized truth over love. And so when they went through an incredibly difficult situation, like they were asking questions about their sexual identity, where they were going through a loss or they were going through some kind of church abuse, or they were trying to navigate this season of questions, the church could not tolerate their questions. The church could not tolerate their skepticism. The church could not handle it. And so they had to walk the journey alone. And then as they would look for new churches, they would survey the church landscape and they would see various stories of various churches that confirmed everything that they knew about the church from where they just were. And so what do many do? They abandon the faith entirely. They walk through a season of rejecting the faith, of deconstructing the faith, or, or making the faith more progressive, I mean, I have several friends in my Bible college classes who have gone through that. So it's not educated, uneducated. It's, it's a question of the heart. And what's it primarily powered by? Hurt. It's primarily powered by hurt. Hurt at seeing abuse, division, gossip, isolation, church protection, and rejection from church communities. It's often fueled by hurt. Not every time, but often. And I watch numerous classmates and students and well-known Christian celebrities, when I watch them embrace skepticism or reject Christianity as a whole, it doesn't drive me towards anger or fear. Listen, it challenges me to love. It challenges me to love. I could send off a series of tweets. I could post angrily on Facebook. I could say how disappointed I am in him or her. Why would you throw more fuel on the fire? Why 
church community, to alleviate your own sense of dread that you're wrong? Would you throw more fuel on the fire and just heap more shame on somebody who's probably hurting? Doesn't the Spirit of God speak kindly to you? Doesn't the Spirit of God speak lovingly to you? This doesn't drive me towards anger or fear. This drives me towards love. So here's the point. Skepticism may present as intellectual issues, but it's most often fueled by hurt and fear. And that's what we're going to see in our text today. We'll see several different kinds of skeptics. Each character in the story that we're going to encounter today is skeptical in some way, shape, or another. But ultimately, we're going to see how the Lord redeems and heals hurt, although sometimes it's through a more painful process than any of the characters in the story are interested in at the outset. So let's review. We've been in the book of Genesis, right? Amen. And um, in the last, I think this is week seven, this is the seventh installment, we are in the story of Joseph. So we are today going to cover chapter 43 and 44, and last week we covered 42. So we're just cruising right on through numbers. And um, we've seen the same pattern over and over again in the book of Genesis, The book of Genesis presents one very, very dysfunctional family that do horrendous things to each other and to the people outside of them. And yet, for some reason, God brings them through and decides to bring this nation and set them up to be a blessing to the world. They can barely be a blessing to each other, and yet God gives this grand vision, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. So in chapter 42, we see that the family of Jacob and the brothers are in absolute shambles. Guilt has ravaged the family unit. We can barely go a paragraph without the brothers mentioning it in chapter 42, and Uh, uh, the, the guilt that they feel is because they sold Joseph into slavery like four chapters earlier and they cannot move past that point. And Jacob is inconsolable. He is kind of worthless on the scene, is a completely passive agent throughout the entire story. And then to make matters worse, famine has ravaged the land. And so there is this crazy drought that is hit and there is no food, there's no water. They have eaten everything that they have. And so Jacob tells the brothers, you need to go down to Egypt because for some reason, somehow they knew there was going to be a famine and they stocked up, they planned ahead. So take all of our money, go buy our grain because I'd rather be broke than starving and dead. So now go to Egypt. And so here's where it gets good because the narrator has been telling us and giving us insights along the way and we know that Joseph is in Egypt and he's ascended to the second most powerful position and we know that the brothers are coming to Egypt and we go, what's going to happen when these two characters connect again? It's been like 20 years since they've seen each other. Last time they saw them, Joseph was in the bottom of a pit with no water and here the family comes to him with no food. So what's going to happen in the bottom of their pit? Joseph finally comes face to face with his brothers 
And, and Joseph immediately recognizes his siblings. He immediately knows who they are. How could he forget? <clears throat> he speaks harshly to them. Chapter 42 tells us, and he throws them in prison for three days, and he hatches a plan to figure out if his family, if his brothers have actually changed. And so what he does is he keeps one brother, Simeon, in jail, and then he sends the rest of them back home with extra money and grain, and he says, don't come back unless you have brought your youngest brother, Benjamin, who is his actual brother. The other brothers are his half-brothers. He wants to know if they have uh, gotten rid of Benjamin as well. So he goes, don't come back until you bring back Benjamin with you. Uh, You won't be able to buy grain. You're not going to get your other brother back. He uses Simeon as collateral. And so this freaks the brothers out, man. They don't know what to do. They are beside themselves. They scurry home and they tell their dad what's going on. Um, uh, But Jacob won't even entertain the idea. He, he is not interested in getting Simeon back, which is the craziest thing. And it gets weirder from there. So they just eat all their food. So Simeon's in jail this entire time and they just eat all their food. Can you imagine that conversation when they go get Simeon back in the next chapter? Man, guys, what took you guys so long? Did you guys get robbed? No, man, it was a safe journey back. Did you lose your money? Did you lose your like map? What happened? Did you like, no, 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 no. We made it home all the way. It was pretty uneventful. So, so how, why did you, when did you decide to come back? Well, admittedly, we decided to come back because we ran out of food. So you let me sit here in jail this entire time? Well, yeah. I mean, dad wouldn't let us come back. That's like middle child problems to the max. Like the forgotten, nobody cares. Anyway, I'm the oldest. I don't have that problem. But Jacob refuses to send the brothers back to Egypt to get Simeon. He just just won't entertain it. He's like, we're not having this conversation. In chapter 43, starts in on the second time they have this conversation with their dad. But again, it's after they've run out of food. And so that's where we pick up the story. Chapter 43, uh, starting in verse 3. Jacob tells them to go back to Egypt to buy more grain. Verse 3. But Judah uh, said to him, so Judah then starts talking to his dad. Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, the man being Joseph, they don't know who he is. The man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother's with you. If you will send your brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send Benjamin with us, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Verse six, Israel said, Israel, Jacob, Jacob said, why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Now, in this one sentence, we get a picture about where Jacob has been for the last 20-ish years, right? We get a picture about what's been going on, about how he's been treating his family, about how he's dealt with his grief, about what he does when he's pressed in a situation. So here's our first skeptic in the story. This is Jacob. He's a skeptic in grief. He's a skeptic in grief. 
We see a couple things here in this one line. The first thing that we see is that Jacob is manipulative. Um, He starts off with, why have you treated me so badly? That's manipulation. Uh, They told the truth. They stood before Joseph. He asked about their family situation and the brothers answered honestly. And, And we see like the brothers don't do anything right in this narrative except for this one thing. They literally do one thing right over the last several chapters and they tell the truth to Joseph. And that when they come back home, Jacob says, why would you have treated me so poorly? He says that their truth-telling is a direct assault against him. The second thing that we see about Jacob here is that uh, he retreats back into his old habits. If you remember his story, what is he known for? Deception. He's known for deceiving the people around him when he's backed into a corner. So what does Jacob do and what does Jacob tell the brothers they should have done when they were backed into a corner? Why didn't you lie? That's like what we do. Why didn't you tell him that all your other brothers were dead or that you didn't have another brother? Why would you tell the truth in this situation? Which as a side note for my parents, I I interact a lot with college students and you would not believe how many of the sin patterns get passed down from generation to generation and how they sit in my office week after week, and they can't figure out why this is such an ingrained first habit. The grace of Jesus very much applies to you as you raise your kids, very, very, very much. And the Spirit also gives you the power to put some of those things into the ground. Because we see Jacob. Jacob wants to deceive. If I was there, I would have lied. If I was there, that's what I would have done. He's mad that they told the truth. He, 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 they, they shouldn't have told anyone about Benjamin. Do you ever do that? Do you ever resort to your old ways when you are backed into a corner? Uh, I do. Those things I thought I was done with when I'm backed into a corner when I'm, when I'm pressed just a little bit, when the, when the family situation or friend situation happens, yeah, 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 I'll resort to old ways. I'll resort to my old deception ways. I'll resort to, I'm just like Jacob. And at his core, <clears throat> at his core, Jacob's grief is driving the train. It's blinding him to seeing anything else. The first thing on his mind, this is the only real thing that he cares about. When the brothers approach him, excuse me, when the brothers approach him about Egypt, he's already assumed that Benjamin is going to die. He has no ability to see a successful return of either Benjamin or Simeon. He laments that Simeon is gone. He's very much alive. Come get me brothers, I'm still around. He doesn't see any other scenario. His grief over Joseph's death 
has caused him to write off his son Simeon and his son Benjamin as they will die as well. It's a sure thing in his mind. He has catastrophized what is going to happen. He can't get the loss of Joseph out of his mind. And it's been what? It's been at least a decade. And it's the only thing that he sees. Everything around him is colored by grief. And there's a significant difference between healthy grieving and toxic grieving. And Joseph is choosing the toxic grieving. Because for Jacob, he's ceased to dream. He ceased to move forward. He sends the brothers. He tries to manipulate them from taking Benjamin. He tells them they should have lied. And I'd argue his grief obscures him from seeing the hand of God in his life. Jacob's a skeptic. His grief has driven him to be skeptical that God can carry on the line that God has a future for them. And so he's hoarding what he most cares about. And he defaults back to lying and deception to get his way. And this is what's so interesting about the Old Testament, about the Bible as a whole when we look at characters. Jacob isn't even a one-dimensional character here because he does something interesting in verse 14. We see a mixture of belief and unbelief, of skepticism and trust, because he finally relents. He gives in to Judah, his son, when he makes the grand speech, and he tells the boys that they can actually take Benjamin now. They can take Benjamin with them. He's reluctant, but in verse 14, he says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, that is Joseph, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. You see this mix of like catastrophizing. He's like lamenting their death that already has happened in his mind. And yet he uses this phrase. You see, may God Almighty, that is the Hebrew El Shaddai. The first time that word appears in the Bible is in Genesis 17, when God comes to Abraham and he gives him a name to call him. God comes to Abraham and he says, my name is El Shaddai. My name is God Almighty. That is who I am. So what does Jacob do when he sends Benjamin? He calls upon this name of God. He calls upon the old, tried and true, covenant name of God. We see a three-dimensional character here, a mix of skepticism and trust, a mix of grief clouding his vision, yet somehow having the clarity to say, I believe, help my unbelief. May God bring you back safely. I think we're more like Jacob than we want to admit. We are in desperate need of a Jesus who sits with us in our grief, who teaches us to dream again and encourages us to move forward rather than regress into destructive old habits. And even when we do regress into those destructive new habits, we are in desperate need of this Jesus who redeems and saves us even in the midst of those old habits. He encourages us to be honest with our skepticism and say with a conflicted Jacob, I believe, help my unbelief. Let's move on to our second skeptic in the text. Let's keep moving on in the story 
The second skeptic that we see are the brothers. The brothers head to Egypt with their hats in hand and Benjamin in tow. Verse 15. Verse 15. So the men took this present. I might not have put it in. Oh, huh. So verse 15. So the men took this present. They came with presents to like, you know, bribe him. And they took double the money with them. And they took Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Skip down to 29. And he, Joseph, lifted up his eyes and saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son, his blood relative. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and he wept there. Joseph is overwhelmed with emotion. But then he returns in the following verses, he returns and he ends up throwing an entire lunch party. He doesn't wait till dinner. He has the lunch party happen immediately and he plies them with good food and the text hints that a little too much liquor kind of a thing they consumed and they ate, drank, they ate, drank and they were very merry, but the brothers were pretty confused because they had actually no idea what was going on because they still have no idea this is Joseph. They just know that they are foreigners in this Egyptian throne room kind of a thing. And all of a sudden they get treated to this incredible meal. They get a lot of wine and and that's where they're at. Meanwhile, Joseph hatches another plan. Their tests aren't over. He has one final test for them left. The first test determined whether or not the brothers would return with Simeon. The second test tested whether or not the brothers would actually bring Benjamin. Now the third test is going to determine whether the brothers will sell out Benjamin to save their own skin. So once the brothers finish up their meal, Joseph leans over to his head steward and he says, take the ceremonial divination goblet. A very, very prized possession. Take this and hide it in Benjamin's sack. And then when they get outside the town, go find them and accuse them of stealing it. And he goes, yes, sir, master, sir. And so they get right outside the town and, they, and, and the steward leaves just like he's told. He heads over to the brothers and he says, which one of you guys stole the goblet? And the brothers are absolutely shocked because no one actually stole the goblet. And they say, um, I think I, did I, did I put it there? Um, and so they, uh, Judah ends up speaking up. And in verse nine, we see Judah gets very confident with himself because he says he knows the brothers. And he goes, whichever, your, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. We will also be my Lord's servants. First of all, can you imagine being one of the brothers there and your other brother just pledged your life on the line, number one. Number two, if something goes wrong, all of you end up being servants to this guy. It's kind of like, all right, pipe down. We know you're confident, but chill a little bit, buddy. Like, yeah, anyway. So sure enough, they look inside the sacks and where is the goblet? It's in Benjamin's sack and Judah goes, oh, crud. 
And so they head on back to the throne room where Joseph is, and that is where the story gets interesting again. This is where the tension of the text has been leading for several chapters. What will they do? We know who had the cup. We know what the brothers have historically done. When they are faced with their backs against the wall, what are they going to do? Are they going to sell out Benjamin? Are they going to take responsibility? How will they navigate this impossible situation? And you get a picture of what they're thinking in verse 16. When he's standing before Joseph and Joseph says, how could you have done this? They say back and Judah said, what shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now, I don't think it's an accident that that word guilt is there because it's meaning, it's a a double meaning. Um, Judah very much is responding to the fact that somehow this goblet was in Benjamin's sack. But I think that you see over the course of this story, the guilt of what they did to Joseph is on the forefront of their minds. And so this is a signal from the narrator to the reader that they cannot get past this sense of guilt. Because earlier when Joseph was being harsh to them, the brothers look at each other and they say, surely we deserve this for what we did to Joseph. Surely we deserve this hardship. And at other points you see uh, Jacob, their father, giving them a hard time about taking Benjamin and there's guilt once again. It's just layers and layers and layers and layers of guilt. It's racked up guilt for what they've done to Joseph. They can't get past it. They sold their brother into slavery and they also gave up a piece of their soul in the process. And so Judah does something really interesting. Judah ends up taking the fall. And he's objectively not a very good guy. Chapter 38, if you guys ended up reading it at some point, uh, he's a terrible human. But he ends up taking the fall for this. He says, no, no, my Lord, if if you would permit it, please let Benjamin go. He is my father's favorite. Let my other brothers go because they don't need to be here and take me to be your servant. Release them and take me, he says. And this is where we see the inability of the brothers to get past anything but their own guilt. Judah takes the guilt upon himself and he gives himself to Joseph and says, take me instead. Release everybody else, but take me. So what are they skeptical of? What are the brothers skeptical of? The brothers are skeptical in that they don't believe in forgiveness. And they believe their shame gets the last word. They don't believe they can be forgiven. Their guilt has stayed with them like a black cloud that's followed them around. It's hovered around them all this time and clouded all of their judgments. We are the brothers here too. Our shame and our guilt pollutes our actions. It distorts our vision. 
We attribute hardship to God's punishment and shun off any notion of our own forgiveness that we have been given in Christ. We have a difficult time accepting Christ's offer of forgiveness. And so sure, we'll accept Christ in this loose sense. But what about my shame? What about my self-loathing? What about, no, those are things I need to carry. And we're surprised when our sense of shame and self-loathing and guilt drives us towards skepticism to see where is God actually in this process, in this situation. God feels distance. We're skeptical that God loves us, that he forgives us, that he actually wants us to be around. And this brings us to our third skeptic in the story. Our third skeptic is the only other character. It's Joseph. And that's how chapter 44 ends. It ends with a long speech from Judah. It's weird because he's given so much more time as far as speech than anybody else in the story. But Judah launches into a lengthy speech offering himself in place for his brothers. And we're left holding our breath. What is Joseph going to do? We know he's cried. We know he's interested in testing the brothers. But we don't actually know what's going to happen. We don't actually know how he's going to respond. He could still just say, ah, off with their heads. I'm kind of done with this. How is he going to respond? On first look, it might not seem like Joseph is a skeptic in the story. It might seem like Joseph is actually the hero. And in many senses, he is the hero in this story. On first reading, it may look like Joseph is only skeptical towards his brothers. He's interested in testing his brothers and rightly so. He's trying to figure out if they're sorry for what they did, if they would do it over again, if they've done the same thing to Benjamin, if the family has changed at all. He's testing his brothers to see if they've changed. And ultimately, in chapter 45, what you'll cover next week, and we're not going to get into now, he does ultimately forgive them. And he embraces them, and he brings them back into the family. And he tells them to move back into Egypt. But in chapter 44, we're not in chapter 45 yet, we're locked in this moment. At the end of Judah's speech, right before Joseph, and Joseph has to say something. Joseph is certainly skeptical of his brothers here. But there's another more subtler way that Joseph is a skeptic. Let's rewind some years in Joseph's story to when he was elevated to his position. Back to when he interprets Pharaoh's dream. When he interprets Pharaoh's dream, this blows Pharaoh's mind because all of his other sorcerers and divination people can't get at the meaning of the dream. But he knows when Joseph says the interpretation, that is absolutely correct. And then something interesting happens when he promotes Joseph to this position over all of the grain production and all of that to make uh, uh, the famine, the effect of the famine, much lessened and make Egypt rich. When he promotes Joseph, he does something interesting. This happens in verse 45 of chapter 41. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephenath Paniah. And he gives him a marriage to Asenath. The daughter of Potiphara, who is she? The priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt, verse 50. 
Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of An, bore them to him. There's no mistaking where these sons came from. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, why is his son named this? For God has made me forget all my hardship and, here's the key, and all my father's house. 52, the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So Pharaoh gives him a brand new name. We're done with this Hebrew stuff. We're done with the stuff that you came from. You are an Egyptian now, so use your Egyptian name. Pharaoh gives him a wife. Not a very high view of women. I don't, you know, don't do that. His wife, Joseph's wife, is the daughter of who? The high priest of the Egyptian cult. The highest religious officer in service to a pagan god. And then Joseph has two sons. Now, he gives them Hebrew names, which is interesting, but he names them essentially, I have left my family and this is where I'm home now. And then later in the story, we see that one of the prized possessions hidden in Benjamin's sack is his divination cup, the cup that he uses to figure out the will of the gods. I would argue that one of the biggest skeptics in this story is lurking beneath the story the entire time. It's Joseph. Joseph is in the middle of a crisis of faith. He's a skeptic in his own right. He's been sold into slavery, thrown in jail, has ascended to the second most powerful position in the land. He's been given a new name, a new family, and he has become an Egyptian. His brothers don't recognize him, not only because he's aged, but also because he's an Egyptian now. He's adapted to Egyptian practices and assimilated into Egyptian culture He is a man with an Egyptian identity and this Hebrew faith identity that he's not sure what to do with and we're not sure what's going to happen at this family reunion. His family represents this old religion that he was grown up on. This family represents something and yet he's rejected his family. And so when the family reunion comes about again, we're going, what's going to happen? Joseph is at his own crisis of faith. Things are going exceedingly well for him and then his family disrupts everything. His family ruins everything that's going on. Because in an instant, all of the pain, all of the trouble, all of the hardship, all of the memories, all of the things he's tried to forget comes rushing back in an instant. And he weeps. We see him weep three times in this text. He can no longer bury it. He can no longer ignore it. He can't turn away from it. And this throws Joseph for a loop. He has no idea what to do. God is forcing him to face his past. He cannot forget anymore. Joseph is having a crisis of faith. Is he an Egyptian, a part of the Egyptian line Or is he a Hebrew? Is he the son of Jacob? Is he in the lineage of Abraham? Is he following this El Shaddai? He's having a crisis of faith. He's having a crisis of identity. Were people caught in a crisis of identity? 
We're people caught between two worlds, the coming kingdom and the existing kingdom. We are people caught between the identity that Jesus has given to us and the identity and the lies that we receive from culture and from the world and the lies that we tell ourselves. We have a similar crisis of faith, crisis of identity. I don't know about you, but it feels like every moment when I wake up, what am I going to believe into? What story am I going to participate in? What am I going to care about? What am I going to get angry about? What am I going to worship? Where am I going? We forget that far from being sinners, far from being worthless, far from being just members of this work forever machine, we are loved sons and daughters of God himself. We are knit into the family of Abraham. We are beloved and God actually sings songs of joy over us and we forget that because we're skeptics too. We're skeptics too. We don't buy it. It's too good to be true. We move away from the identity that Christ has given us and we've embraced our old identity all the time. But listen, look at what happens to every one of the skeptics in this story. God does not forget about the family. He doesn't wash his hands of this family because they are too much of a problem. Even though Joseph is even doing well and turning away from the Lord in his own way, God pursues him even though he is so far away from the land of God. He pursues the family, each in their own right. He pursues every skeptic in our text in their own right. And we don't see the divine intention of the Lord in word, but we see it through the subtle actions of what's going on. So what? So what? The first so what I want us to see is that the Lord pursues us in our own skepticism. I'm not sure what it is you're walking through right now. It could be a whole host of things, things that I could never have even fathomed. It could be that you feel so far from the Lord that even this seems absolutely insane. And the fact that you are here is an absolute miracle. Look, I I believe the Lord pursues us in our skepticism no matter how that comes. God pursues us. He's on a rescue mission for us because it seems like God might be in the business of saving skeptics. Those seem to be the people that he most delights in getting after. He most delights in showing his grace and joy and love. Those seem like the people that he is most concerned about are the one that has wandered away in skepticism. Jesus rescues us. He gives us new identities. He pursues us. He brings us back into the family when we stray. And that brings us to my second so what point. Listen, Jesus is the better Joseph. Jesus is the better Judah. Jesus is the better Jacob. Jesus is the better Jacob in that he is the father of all of us. And he never asks us to be deceptive when we are backed into a corner. 
In fact, he invites us into truer joy and truer delight. Jesus is the better Judah in that he stands before the throne and takes the punishment that we deserve. He is the better Judah and Jesus is the better Joseph in that he rules all things. He does not put us through mindless tests to figure out if we have changed. Jesus knows our heart. He gives us the spirit. He gives us the power to change. Jesus is the better Joseph. So what do we do? Friends, we worship this Jesus. We worship him. We confess our skepticism. We value the fact that we have skepticism. We don't dismiss it, but we worship this Jesus. I'll pray. Father, I'm grateful for this text. I'm grateful that you speak life to us, even in texts where it's not clear how you speak. Even when the characters aren't sure how you're speaking, you very clearly call the skeptics to yourself. You very clearly speak words of love and truth and grace and joy over us. And so we confess that we need more of you. We need you to speak to our very skepticism. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for cherishing us. Thank you for delighting us. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.